Hey, podcast listeners, Mackenzie here. I wanted to personally thank you for listening and being a part of our community. We couldn't do this show without you. As we shape the next series of the Living Centered Podcast, I wanted to invite you specifically to help us out. We want to hear from you. We're currently in the process of curating a series all around exploring the relationships that make up our lives. Together with various experts, clinicians, and on-site alum, we'll explore the nuances, intricacies, and impact of the relationships within which we all exist. From families of origin to friendships, dating, working relationships, and beyond. We hope to host conversations with guests who bring a definitive and unique perspective. This is where you come in. We want to know your pressing relationship questions. You can submit your questions to podcast at experienceonsite.com and you might just hear an answer on our next series. Scott Peck has said that mental health is a commitment to face reality at all costs. I often have wondered what would it have meant for me if telling the truth hadn't come with such a high cost. I probably would have told the truth when I was 20 and not 30 yeah. about all sorts of things. The healing journey would have began earlier, but for me it began at 30 and it's been ongoing since then. It's taken on different forms and different shapes. And anytime you step into that space, anytime you offer whole parts of yourself that have been locked in closets and you open that up to divine light and love, to fresh air, to your own observation, to the wisdom of trustworthy guides, it changes you. Welcome to the Living Centered Podcast, where we enter into honest conversations about pursuing a more centered life, rediscovering, reclaiming, and rooting in to who we truly are. I'm your host, Miles Edcox. And I'm your host, Lindsay Nobles. Many of us grew up with a skepticism about psychology, psychiatry, and utilizing professionals to support us in our emotional health. We had voices telling us that our spirituality and our faith should deem them unnecessary. But our emotional health and our spiritual health should both be prioritized. Thankfully, over time, the stigma around mental and emotional health work is breaking down. If you've ever wrestled with this topic, we know you'll deeply connect with this week's guest, award-winning author and speaker, Jonathan Merritt. Jonathan is a popular thought leader and a writer on issues of faith and culture. Throughout the interview, he shares his professional expertise and personal experience regarding the intersection between faith and psychology and the deep healing that comes from authentically exploring and merging the two disciplines. I could talk forever about Jonathan's professional achievements. He is one of America's most popular writers on issues of faith and culture. He is the author of several critically acclaimed books, including Learning to Speak God from Scratch, which was named Book of the Year by Inglewood Review of Books. You can head to our show notes today to get a full list of his works. Jonathan holds a Master of Divinity from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, a Master of Theology from Emory University's Candler School of Theology, and has done additional graduate work at the General Theological Seminary of the Episcopal Church. Jonathan's a smarty pants. During our conversation, Jonathan shares about his own emotional and mental health journey on the backdrop of his upbringing in evangelicalism and finding harmony within these two worlds. 
we discuss friendship, community, empathy, curiosity, and the healing power of animals. I can't wait for you to meet my friend, Jonathan. Today, I am talking to one of my favorite people, Jonathan Merritt. Jonathan and I met about 10 years ago, probably 10-ish years ago. We did, something like that. We went to a Georgia football game together. You're a giant Georgia fan. Yes, we did. We went to a big Georgia game in Athens, which is a special, in Athens, Georgia, which is a real special experience. So I remember meeting you and being kind of intimidated because I, at the time I followed you online and had read some of your books, but I didn't know much else about you. And then just hanging out with you for the weekend, I was like, you are so full of fun and adventure. And Mm -hmm. so when people meet you a lot that have followed you professionally, what surprises them about meeting you in person? You know, I hope that people find me to be warmer than they expected. And typically they do say something like that. I mean, for the majority of my career, so much of the way that I've interacted with, I hate to use these phrases, but like followers and fans is through social media. And one thing that I've really come to be conscious of in recent years is how my personality so radically shifts in those spaces. I'm given to all kinds of tendencies that are not altogether good in those spaces that I don't express at all outside of them. My, my sarcasm uh, hits a high level, my defensiveness you know, my desire to dominate and to convert others to my way of thinking. And so people who know me online, they will often say, man, you are much more friendly in person, or you're, you're not at all like I expected you to be, which is sort of a, a loaded phrase now. I, I know what they mean. And I think that's what really disarms people. And, and for me, I, I think it's been a real learning experience because over the years, it took hearing that year after year after year at event after event after event until I said, maybe I'm being a jerk online. And the fact is, I am a jerk online and I'm getting better at that. And so I think that there are a lot of people who know Jonathan Merritt, Inc., the Jonathan Merritt that lives in those digital spaces. And um, they have been so gracious through sharing their own observations to alert me to the chasm that exists between Jonathan Merritt, who is, and that Jonathan Merritt, Inc. persona that, that, that I created. Yeah. And a jerk is a hard word for it. I mean, do you, do you feel like it's a jerk? Is that the right terminology? Yeah. You know, am I a jerk every time I show up on Twitter? No. Uh, If you were to selectively pick tweets from the past, could you get page after page after page of correspondence interaction uh, that you would say that's sort of jerkish or that's being a jerk? The answer is also yes. So it's what I feel like that day, how I feel triggered by something that someone says. You know, I've had people weaponize family relationships. The fact is, is that many people online do inappropriate things that should make you mad, right? That, that will actually create a response, but, but it's perceived as being a jerk when people have an uncontextualized response. They don't know my story. They don't know the depth of my pain. They don't know the wound that they inadvertently or perhaps even purposefully just stepped on. They don't know. And so outside of the context, 
subtext of my whole story, I think it appears even, even more rude, crass, temperamental than it actually is. Yeah. Has that changed the way that now you show up online or does it just help you have better boundaries between knowing sort of what is required to sort of show up in those spaces is different than what's required in showing up in your day-to-day relationship? Yeah. The thing that I, I found to be most effective is reorienting my entire posture uh, toward those avenues for communication is to begin asking what it looks like to be in a healthy relationship with Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, or to ask the hard questions about whether a healthy relationship for me is just not possible. I think it is possible uh, to some extent, but I think I've had to renegotiate it. And so as I have begun to reorient my relationship to those things, that's important. I'll tell you another thing, uh, and this is important with onsite, and I'm sorry that I'm just stealing the floor, but you, you, you asked it. a really good question. You know, one of the things that I learned in OnSite is, you know, you have a lot of these conversations about medicators. And there are two medicators that scored really highly for me that I wasn't even aware of. One was technology. Um, I checked it after OnSite and I was averaging about 11 hours and 29 minutes a day, if uh, if I remember correctly. Uh, I've gotten that down to about in the eight hour range since OnSite through, you know, taking some steps to to do that. And, and then uh, work. Work is a place as a, as a three, as an achiever, as somebody who was raised in a performance environment that judged worth on work and on efficiency and on your productivity in various areas. I realize that I am often showing up to do work in technological spaces when I am the worst version of myself. Because when I'm using those as medicators, it is because I'm experiencing stress or pain in other areas of my life. So now what I'm able to do is to begin to hold myself accountable for only showing up in those spaces when I am a reasonably healthy version of myself. So when I am using them as a tool for work or a tool for connection, uh, I can very easily interact in healthy ways. When I am showing up to medicate my pain, my trauma, my triggering, my reactions, my frustration, my stress, whatever, my spiraling, then uh, I know that I'm more likely to show up in ways that present something that is not exactly who I am if you were to meet me in person. And so I would say it's reorienting the relationship rather than managing the behavior. That's been the most helpful thing for me. I think I love that you talked about like that one of your medicators was work and social media, which are not bad things in of themselves. They're important. They can be used for good. But sort of the idea of medicators is, you know, like when we're looking to feel grounded, those are things that we lean on and that they're not actually providing the stability and the support long term that we're looking for. And so we try to lean on them and then they can Mm -hmm. sort of let us down, you know, and yeah, yeah, because, because those, those things are, don't, they're, they are not able to ground us. And, you know, so much of the version of Christianity that I come from is, it is an abstinence culture. And so, you know, we were, I was raised being told things like, well, you know, if this does pose a threat, you just abstain from it altogether, right? So like, 
if there's a chance that you could drink too much of the wine and, you know, wrap your Honda Civic around a tree, then it's a sin to even take a drop, right? A, uh, or as, as I heard was, was repeated to me, was like a drop full is the same as a barrel full. And that's a kind of distortion of what it means to live a healthy spiritual life in particular, I would say a healthy Christian life. And in fact, if you want some old wisdom on this from, I guess you'd call an early British evangelical, C.S. Lewis, surprisingly, has an entire chapter in Mere Christianity where he sort of says, abstinence has never been a posture of the Christian life, but temperance. The question is, how much is healthy for me? What does it mean to recognize the goodness that is inherent in this tool? And also recognize that even a good tool can be used in a way that is bad for me. And uh, that to me, uh, that has been a a kind of meta level spiritual reorientation Yeah, uh, that has has allowed me not just to begin thinking about social media, but, but to begin thinking about how I interact with all kinds of things. Yeah, that's great. You mentioned earlier that you sort of had an evangelical upbringing, and then you've talked some about sort of this emotional health journey that you've been on personally. Growing up, I think even as a child of our parents' generation, I remember like when I was in high school that I told my parents I wanted to be a therapist, and they were like, why? Like, why would you want to do that? And so I just think that sort of it's not top of mind for them, but then I think with in the evangelical subculture that there can be even more disdain or distrust of modern psychology. How have you seen that play out for you personally? Well, I would say, you know, I was, I'll give a, a little bit of background. I was raised by a, an evangelical megachurch pastor and the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, somebody who was uh, very high profile, who was well-educated and adept with scripture. And so, you know, the, there, were no, there was no reason to question the rightness or wrongness uh, or the healthiness of anything that I was taught growing up in that system, in that culture. You know, the Sunday school teachers, the Christian schooling, the Christian college. The other thing that's sort of unfortunate about evangelicalism as a design feature is a skepticism toward modern psychology. It's similar to uh, the the orientation, I think, that Jehovah's Witnesses have toward uh, the medical community for their own physical health in the same way, the way that evangelicals often, often, not always, relate to the mental health community is that way. You know, in the pantheon of bad guys and girls, Uh, you're going to find right along people like Charles Darwin and Margaret Sanger, you're going to find Sigmund Freud, Carl Jung. Uh, You're going to find people who have contributed significantly to conversations about emotional and psychological health. Psychology is seen as a threat. Psychologists are replaced with untrained, quote unquote, biblical counselors. And so there's a kind of self-sealing effect that happens in that. Not only do you have all of the right ingredients to produce unhealth, but you have created skepticism that discourages people from accessing the tools that could promote their health. And that has been something that I had to unravel early on 
in order to even begin this journey toward health. How did you sort of find therapists or psychology and sort of your own personal emotional health journey when growing up where that wasn't sort of thought of or accepted? You know, I know a lot of people whose journey toward understanding their own trauma began with a whisper. You know, Mm. it was like they started to see that things weren't uh, working. It was kind of um, an inkling. Yeah. And I didn't have that experience. My journey toward trauma healing began with a rupture. I was in in 2012, I was leading as a teaching pastor at my dad's megachurch. I was, you know, writing and my writing career was taking off. I'd published some books and I'd published a lot of articles. And I was publicly outed in the national press. And, you know, that was hard in a way that other hard things weren't hard. There, there was a unique kind of pain from having a delicate story that is only yours to tell stolen from you and then told for you in a way that you would never have told it. And uh, conversations that should have spanned months were all condensed into a few days and I was having to have them with sort of the cadence of machine gun fire in a distressed state you know coupling that with the 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 community that I was a part of which you know the evangelical community it was coupled with risks to my belonging in my family my belonging in my faith community my ability to make money and pay the bills, my livelihood, my friendships were often irrevocably changed, you know, against my will. It was a it was a rupture down to my core. And I find that people who experience these kinds of ruptures, you know, can go one way or the other. They can retrench into the habits that that sort of contributed to the rupture uh, that prevented those things from from healing in years past, or they can take the unknown path. Yeah. And uh, you know, a, a common friend of ours, a friend named Margaret, told me, and we had already been planning to do this long before I was outed. It, I already had plans to do it, you know, by God's grace. But I went out to an intensive program, somewhat similar to on-site, just in that, you know, it's all based in concentrated time with a professional. But it wasn't group therapy. It was individual therapy, three hours a day, two weeks, with a guy named Will Franz in Colorado, who is now retired. And um, he was a gentle, fatherly figure who did not come to this process with any preconceived notions about where it would end up. Mm. And I went out there thinking 
that I was going to have long conversations day after day about my sexual orientation. And I did not. Right. Uh, we, we, had, we had some conversations about that. What we talked about instead was, you know, as he said to me, most of us, Jonathan, spend the majority of our lives trying to sort through everything that happened to us between five and 15. Mm. And that was true for me. And there were wounds, gaping wounds, that I had been blind to, that I had rationalized away, that I, you know, was in denial about. And I was able in this gentle, loving setting to begin to see the power of what it means to tell the truth to yourself. And, you know, Scott Peck has said that mental health is a commitment to face reality at all costs. I often have wondered what would it meant, what, what would it have meant for me if telling the truth hadn't come with such a high cost? I probably would have told the truth when I was 20 and not 30 yeah. about all sorts of things. The healing journey would have began earlier, but for me, it began at 30 and it's been ongoing since then. It's taken on different forms and different shapes. And anytime you step into that space, anytime you offer whole parts of yourself that have been locked in closets and you open that up, right, to divine light and love to fresh air, to your own observation, to the wisdom of trustworthy guides, it changes you. And yeah. so I have been in a process, a decade long process almost now of rapid transformation at every level of my being, emotionally, physically, spiritually. You know, it, it has not been up and to the right, I'll tell yeah. you. It was a, a period of healing, and then I moved to New York, and then there was a massive crash. And that's when I had to redouble my efforts uh, to healing my trauma. It's, it's so funny, as I was listening to you share, and thank you so much for sharing so much of that with us. As a friend, watching you go through all of that, I don't think I've heard you talk about it so concisely. And what happened to you was so traumatic. And mm -hmm. I'm so glad that you found somebody great to like be a guide on the journey. And I think so often, like so many of us approach our emotional health journey looking to be fixed. I don't know if that's like an upbringing thing, but at least for me, I'm like, can, can somebody please just fix me? Can they fix my life? Can they fix me mm -hmm. and whatever's broken? But listening to your talk, I was reminded that so much of it's really just about enlightenment. And like a, a deepening understanding of ourselves and an acceptance of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And that's so beautiful to watch people in that. Mm -hmm. It's like truly like watching people become who in my spiritual belief system, like God intended them to fully be and sort of live mm -hmm. instead of living shackled to somebody else's design of who they should be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And a lot of that for me was in letting go of secrets. You know, I think there are secrets that we develop in childhood that keep us safe. 
And those same secrets in adulthood keep us stuck. Mm. Uh, they don't allow us to move beyond the frameworks and the heart spaces and the relational depth that we had in childhood. And uh, for me, it was, I didn't even realize, you know, they become so embedded into your own existential DNA. It's just muscle memory. You're not even aware that you're keeping them. And it, it wasn't until someone came along and began to point them out for me and not just point them out for me, but to point out the cost, not just the cost uh, that I would have to pay if I let go of the secrets, but the cost of keeping them. I'd never tabulated that before. You know, so many of us, we ask the question, what will it cost if I share this? And we don't ask, what will it cost if you don't? Right. And I once don't. I began to ask that question, it changed everything. Yeah. And I don't think it just costs us. I think it costs the people that we're closest to. Yeah, I agree. And, and, and I think for me, I, I had to then begin asking, uh, okay, if this, is a, if this is something that needs to be shared and not shielded, right? It needs to be released. Then you have to have, to have other conversations. Who is a trustworthy and safe person to share this with? You know, because you have other people who share their secrets and, you know, they're vomiting online. They're saying things that you should never say in public that are not in their best interest to share. And it is, it is given the appearance of nobility because we cloak it in vulnerability language. But what it really is, is lack of boundaries. And so I had to realize once I had stepped into the phase of, okay, now I'm going to open myself up, uh, I began to realize that not everybody is a safe person. Not everybody deserves the honor of keeping that secret with you, of holding that secret, of, of sharing space with you as you release that vulnerability. And so I, I have had to, to take that next step. Uh, it's not just, do I keep them or do I not? But what does it look like to steward those secrets well in spaces where I can share them, where I can grieve them, mm -hmm. where I can process them with other people? And that's, um, that's, an, that's an even trickier conversation, I think. Yeah, I think I've been relearning that too. I think with the introduction of social media and blogging back in the day, I used to sort of love to process things online and get people's feedback mm -hmm. in real time. And then I realized that that had turned into me sort of having the conversation online before I shared it with a small group of close people that like I really cared about, know me and can push back. And so it's been interesting trying to reorient that of like making sure I'm constantly thinking about like who are these people for me that are like my safest circle and then who are my friends beyond that that sort of I want the depth of relationship with, I want to hear from directly. I want them to hear from me directly before I just put it out to a larger audience. Yeah. And I think most people make, make their friendships based on proximity. Yeah. You know, it's like, I used to work, I used to work at place A. And so my, I had a lot of friends from place A and now I work at place B and I have a lot of friends from place B. Um, and that's, you're making decisions by proximity. And I don't think proximity is a good standard for friendship, frankly. Most people have that as an unchallenged. It's whoever goes to church with you, whoever lives next door to you. And I think that 
simply being near someone on a regular basis does not qualify them yeah. for access to your life uh, or to the most sensitive details about your life, past or present. Yeah. So how, how do you gauge safety and who's mm -hmm. deserving of sort of those deeper thoughts and feelings? You know, I think that you have to test it over time. Um, trust is given, but trust is earned. And so, you know, I, over time, I have begun to see that there are some people that I can trust with certain things and not other things. There are some people that I can trust implicitly. In order to make those decisions, I do at least three things. One, I look for some objective characteristics. Empathy is one. Curiosity is another. I, I am often asking, how many questions did they ask you? Just think that. Just, <laughs> yeah. just go into go into a first date or go into, you know, a lunch with a coworker and just ask yourself, keep tabs if you if you want, just as a thought experiment. How many questions did they ask? By the way, for personal improvement, how many questions did you ask? Yeah. Because are you cultivating curiosity and empathy as well? Right. I, sometimes, you know, it's just the way mirror neurons work, I guess. But if we learn to be curious and empathetic, we find that we either create that in people around us or we will attract that. Sometimes part of the problem is, is that you're not the type of person that you would hope would be your friend. And so uh, I look for those objective standards, things like uh, curiosity and empathy, or you could say curiosity and, and compassion. You know, another one would be whether or not this person is trustworthy. How do you know that? You know, the person who always tells you everybody else's secrets is probably telling your secrets to someone. Yeah. Um, somebody who says, you, you, somebody who will make you promise not to tell someone what you're about to tell them, and they do that on a regular basis, not in an exceptional basis where maybe the person's acting in a way that is harmful to them and you need help. But somebody who does that as a way to show how much they care for you. Those are red flags for me. Also, I test their wisdom over time. Did their, has their wisdom served me well? Or were they feeding my ego, right? That's a tempting thing to do, I'll say, especially for a three who can have that kind of chameleon tendency. I can, I can opt for acceptance over honesty. So I will tell people what I know they want to hear. And I'm doing it, you know, unconsciously diagnosing who they need me to be and then showing up as that person. So uh, I begin to I begin to look for that, those characteristics as as I trust them with small things. I begin to sort of look at that over time. And that doesn't mean that I cut people off. It just means that I, I begin to learn over time that there are certain things that I can't trust certain people with. And the other one is, is to always have in your life that, that guide, that sage. And one of those people for me is my therapist. The pandemic was triggering for me in a, in a, in a unique way because it threatened my safety and security. Yeah. And that was something that my sense of safety and security is sort of my base requirement for mental health. And so to have her as a person I can check in with, and I can begin to bounce off uh, of her stories of other people. She's, she's a helpful gauge for me where she'll be able to say, I think you think this is safe, but maybe it's not. 
and to begin to help me reformulate questions that will bring, bring to my own awareness areas where I'm not safe and people where I'm not safe. So having another resource outside of you that is trusted and experienced in this kind of work is invaluable. I think that's that you have to have that uh, in order to build really healthy boundaries in your life. Yeah, my therapist has been a godsend in this season. And I think it's so helpful that sort of I see her when I'm not in crisis too. And that then it becomes about sort of like proactive conversations about how can I have a more productive conversation uh, at work with a team member. And, you know, it, it isn't just crisis management, but it's like, mm-hmm. how can I be my best and most thoughtful self in the everyday? So yeah, I love yeah. the consistency of that. Hey friends. Did you know that we have an online store curated with some of our favorite emotional wellness resources, gifts, books, and apparel? You don't have to come to Tennessee to bring a little piece of Onsite home to you. Check out our collection of goods at onsiteworkshops.com store and use the code podcast at the checkout for 20% off your entire order. Some people use and I guess I'm uh, that word is intentional. They use therapists as a, a ripcord, an emergency button. Yeah. And that is, I, I think a better metaphor is a companion. And so somebody who sees the mountaintops and the valleys, right? They've seen your life lived in broad brushstrokes. But one other thing I've found, oftentimes the deepest work I do with processing pain buried sadness, grief, anger, is when I thought right before I clicked that button and started the video conference, I thought I was really healthy. Yeah. Or that you wouldn't have anything to talk about. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, we're not, yeah, we're not going to have anything to talk about. And then you run out of time. Yeah. And so um, don't assume that you're the best judge of whether or not uh, you are harboring unprocessed emotion, pain, trauma, undiscussed events, you know, whether you're operating on the wrong questions or the right ones, you will always be you and you will never be outside of you, which means you can never be an objective judge for whether your questions are right or your, your emotions are being effectively processed. It does take another person. Uh, who who has a little bit of perspective, but who has your best interest in mind? Yeah. Who has no? They're not incentivized. Unlike friends, you go, oh, well, my friend. You know, friends uh, often have they're incentivized uh, to offer certain answers, and a therapist is not. Their only incentive is to help you, because if they don't serve you well, you will often find another one. Right. If they yeah. start giving you bad advice and, and everything they give you, everything they say to you backfires, everything they say is wrong or it doesn't feel right. So they're incentivized to help you. And I think they're they are invaluable resources. And I know you you and I have shared that belief for a long, long time. <laughs> yes. Thank God for therapists. Yes. And um, dogs. Therapists and dogs. and dogs. Yeah. So kind of wrapping up, I know that you're in New York City. And it's been a long year of COVID related happenings. What are you doing to like sort of stay centered besides talking to a therapist? What keeps you feeling grounded day to day? Gosh, well, I I would say 
there's so many things, but I'll just give you kind of a list. And some of them will be things that a lot of people will recognize if they've listened to this podcast. Um, I have a spiritual director in addition to a therapist. Your therapist is not your pastor. It's not your Christian counselor. They're not your, you know, they're not your minister. And um, so for that work, I have a, a Jesuit priest who lives here who is fantastic and who really challenges me to begin noticing how God is showing up and even um, often challenges me uh, to to engage in kind of many spiritual retreats. And that has been invaluable. I mean, you would think it's so simple to just say, how's God showing up in your life? Right. Uh, but you'd be shocked at what comes up in those meetings. And that has really contributed to my health by helping me to really maintain a spiritual connectivity, which is not always easy. I also have a very strong sense of community here um, in the seminary. There are several families here that I'm really, really close to. And we really, you know, to use a, a tear a page out of evangelicalism, we do life together. But, you know, we will celebrate Christmas together. We, we have like, you know, Friday nights, somebody will call and say, come over, let's play like, this dance game on the PlayStation and we all do, or let's bake something so together. So that's, that, that's a big one for me. And then meditation is huge, huge. What does that um, look like for you? I do it in the morning and in the evening, but sometimes it's even in small times during the day, I'll be waiting in line at a post office and I'll return to the breath, mm. slow down, soothe my nervous system. Sometimes it has a um, spiritual component. I'll, I'll do a, a breathing prayer and I'll pray whatever it is I feel I want or need to say at the moment. And so I could inhale, you know, oh Lord, my God, or oh Lord, my protector, you know, oh Lord, my companion. Uh, something that reminds me who God is or can be to me in a moment. And then I may just release and I'll say something like, you know, give me your peace. Oh, Lord, my comforter, breathe in. Give me your peace, breathe out. And by centering myself, focusing myself, anchoring myself, truly grounding myself in the present moment, it, uh, it helps me not to be washed away by my future anxieties, which is where my brain will often want to go or the pains and regrets of my past, which is where my brain will often, will often go. It also, I think, allows me to begin differentiating between the thinker and the thought. Mm. You know, the, the, the thought is the whirlwind. The thinker is always here. The thinker always has the ability to choose, to remove himself or herself from the tyranny of the future or the, or the past and learning simple tools to do that and practicing that. I use the Calm app. I tried the Headspace app this year, but I really love the Calm app. I know a lot of people use Insight Timer. I love guided meditations and programs where, you know, you even practice, I have a, a meditation I use, you, you were saying this earlier, particularly people who've been raised in pietistic traditions, maybe you were raised Roman Catholic or evangelical, and Tara Brock, who does a lot on mindfulness meditation, says this is true of all Westerners, but we are compulsively orienting ourselves to, to ourselves in a posture of self-dislike. 
I didn't know that was true mm. until I ended up in an abusive relationship. And for year after year, I allowed someone to cheat on me and to lie to me and to, in one instance, physically abuse me and to psychologically abuse me. And I think in, in hindsight, I, I allowed that to go on because it felt so familiar. In hindsight, I let that go on um, because it felt like love to me because that's how I knew love. I think in hindsight, I let it go on because I thought that was normal. And as my therapist said at the time, I thought I deserved it because I oh. stayed in it. Yeah. And she would, she said to me one time after I recounted all these terrible things I wanted to fix, she said, how much do you have to hate yourself to think you deserve this? And I was, I was forced to confront my own posture of self dislike. You know, there are a range of loving kindness meditations that are powerfully transformative where you can begin to intentionally direct feelings of love and compassion toward yourself, toward the younger versions of yourself that are under your care, yeah. who never chose this path and never chose this pain. And I will tell you through practicing those loving kindness meditations, and it's, by the way, it's scientifically proven to do this, but it reduces not just the level of stress I have, but uh, it, it, it changes everything I touch because that person that I am directing those emotions to, that person goes with me everywhere I go and they touch everything I touch. And so that for me is something that I've realized um, cannot go neglected. And if I neglect that, I, I find a decline in my own mental health. That's really powerful. That makes me want to be better about making time for meditation. Yeah. I know that you're working on a book. Mm -hmm. Where are you in that process? Is it, when can we? You know, I, I, I wish it were further along than it is. It's, it's due in the spring. And um, it, it, I intend it to be a kind of spiritual companion to the journey of healing trauma. Mm. And um, I do not want to spiritualize the process. And so I'm not writing a book that is a replacement for the hard work that can only be done with the guidance of a licensed professional. Uh, I don't intend it to be a replacement for medication that people may need to take. But I do believe that while so many of us have welcomed psychology and medicine to the table, spirituality hasn't always been welcomed at that conversation. And uh, the majority of what we know about trauma, its impacts on us, and the path to healing have been learned over the last 125 years or so, primarily uh, through these two fields of medicine and psychology. And uh, I think that can only lead us to a partial healing. I think there is a whole part of us that needs to be welcomed to this conversation to understand the spiritual impacts of physical and psychological traumas and to understand the spiritual tools that can enhance, accelerate, 
and even to take us to greater depths that we never thought possible in the trauma healing process. And so what I would like to do is to provide um, a companion that is based on some of the things that I have learned in the last decade. It will be a companion and not the companion. You know, it's a pilgrimage and not the pilgrimage. It is a path and not the path. Everyone I'm realizing has to find their own path. Right. And there are some things that have worked for me that may work for you. And there are some things that work for you that won't work for me. But I hope that through this, if nothing else, I can tell people a story of a person who found the courage to conspire with the divine in his own healing. And if nothing else, even if not a single tool in this book works for any of my readers, I hope they'll be inspired by my courage and find their own bravery to begin walking that path themselves. I cannot wait. And for me, I think the convergence of that spiritual world and the emotional health world have just been so healing. So I can't Mm -hmm. wait to read your Mm -hmm. journey. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh my gosh. Well, you know, it, it, just to talk to a friend is always a pleasure, but to also talk about these important things that, you know, you guys have such a, an amazing mission. And uh, for me, OnSite did so much for me in January of this year. I had friends who begged me, practically begged me for years. And at the end of last year, you know, I, I, I talked to you And I was at the end of my rope and, you know, you really encouraged me and helped to sort of move the process along so that I could be there. And I had no idea, even with all the work that I've done, I had no idea what I was in for. And the level of gratitude that I feel, of course, I would spend time on a podcast talking to you because what you're doing there should be a a thousand on-sites all Mm. across America. There should be a thousand on-sites. The sad part about what you do is that you can't do all the work that needs to be done. There are too many people for you to help. And too many people don't realize that they need you. And uh, it it is one of the best investments I have ever made in my well-being. And so it is a joy and a pleasure not just to be with you, Lindsay, as a friend, but to be on this podcast because I feel like OnSite in, in a very real and tangible way has been a, a friend to me as well. Oh, thank you so much. At OnSite, we believe that enhancing emotional health changes lives and helps us collectively create a more empathetic and self-aware world. Our unique and proven therapeutic framework in healing hospitality can help you find the emotional wellness you deserve. If you want to learn more about OnSite and our in-person programs or our digital courses, please go to onsiteworkshops.com. When our emotional health is suffering, many of us begin to feel alone and overwhelmed. If you're in that place right now, we deeply encourage you to ask for help. If OnSite can support you in connecting the dots with one of our programs or other offerings, our admissions team would love to connect with you. Simply call 1-800-341-7432 or visit onsiteworkshops.com.